we're going to look at the story of one of the strangest New Testament characters in the Bible. Now, this character that we're going to look at this morning, he was sent by God to come before Jesus to prepare people to receive the message of Jesus and understand who Jesus is and why Jesus came. And this, this character, he attracted the attention of the entire nation because he was so odd. Now, of course, this character is John the Baptist, and he was more than just some weird prophet in the wilderness. He was the, the cousin of Jesus. Of course, his birth was just as miraculous, well, not just as, but also miraculous like Jesus' birth. Of course, his, his mother, uh, Elizabeth, was Mary's cousin, and uh, Elizabeth was old in age and, and barren and not able to have kids, and God miraculously gave her a child. And this child, of course, grew up to be John the Baptist. And just a wonderful story of his birth. And, and when Mary, who is pregnant with Jesus, comes to see Elizabeth, and Elizabeth is still pregnant with John. John leapt in her womb for joy for being in the presence of the Messiah, even though he was still in utero, in, in, in his mother's belly. But so John was a messenger prepared by God and sent by God to preach the message of Jesus before Jesus came. He was sent to prepare the people of Israel to receive Jesus as Messiah. But his, his behavior and his message got more attention than Jesus did before he began his ministry. And that was, that was God's plan. See, God wanted to use John to show people exactly how they were re to receive Christ. So look at Matthew chapter 3, starting at verse number 1. Bible says, in those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Now, I've heard a lot of people here, uh, not here, I'm sorry. I've heard a lot of people in my life say, well, you know, Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, so therefore Jesus was a Baptist. No, it's not the Baptist as we think of it as the Baptist church. It was literally John the Baptizer. He was the one who baptized people for repentance of their sins. And so, you know, people are like, oh, see, Jesus was a Baptist. We're supposed to be Baptist too. No, that's not what it's saying. Don't take stuff out of context. But anyway, that's, that's another rabbit trail. Uh, and when he had fasted for, nope, that's chapter four. Uh, so in those days came John the Baptist preaching the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that is spoken by, of, the pro, of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Now, how many of y'all like honey? I love honey. Uh, I like fresh honey. I've, I have for years wanted to uh, raise bees and have, you know, beehives in my backyard to, you know, harvest the honey. But April won't let me because uh, she's scared for the kids anyway. You know, honey's more important than kids. And if you leave the bees alone, they'll leave you alone, right? But I, I love honey. Uh, I like fresh honey. Uh, and I just, I, I like it on toast. I like it in whatever. It's just good. Um, I've never had locust. Uh, but I have had fried grasshoppers. Anyone else had some, some kind of weird insect eaten? Really? They're good. 
uh, especially if you season them right. They're kind of like chips. It is weird with the, uh, the legs getting stuck in your teeth, but generally they're not a terrible type of snack. Uh, but if we had a guy in our, in, our, in our community, a guy in our neighborhood, who's got a big old bushy beard, he's running around in a loincloth eating bugs and honey, we're, we're going to be worried about his mental health. We're to be concerned about him. And that's, that's exactly how we should feel. But John, they didn't feel this way about John in the, old, in the New Testament. To the Israelites, John was very odd, but not because they thought he was crazy. His lifestyle, how he chose to dress and act and what he chose to eat and how he chose to live his life showed that he didn't care about the establishment. See, John's a prophet. He is a religious leader. And typically during this time, the religious leaders, they were typically part of the nobility or the wealthy part of society. They had extensive training. They wore nice clothes. They ate good meals. They were the wealthy in the culture because they were taken care of. And so they had a, when you were a religious leader in this time, you had a different appearance about you. You dressed nicer, kind of held your head up. You were more respectable. And here's this religious leader who's getting a pretty big crowd. He's getting a pretty big following. And he's running around in his underwear eating, you know, bugs and so Israel looked at him as like, there, there's something different about John. And that's what drew people to him because John reminded people of another prophet who was kind of rough around the edges, and that was Elijah. The Old Testament had prophesied several times that before the Messiah came, there would be one in the spirit of Elijah who would come and prepare the way for the Messiah. And so the, many people believe that when it talks about one in the spirit of Elisha, that it was Elisha resurrected, but really it's just talking one who, about one who was similar to him. It kind of had the same attitude and the same, you know, the way he preached the same way and gave the same type of message. And so when John shows up, kind of a unkempt, bushy-haired guy, kind of rough around the edges, not really preaching, you know, really eloquent messages. His messages are pretty simple, like you vipers, repent, get right with God. His messages are simple but harsh. They believe that this is Elisha resurrected. You know, Matthew tells us that John was the one that Isaiah told about that would come before Jesus to prepare the way of the Lord. The last book of the Old Testament, the, the last words that God had spoken to Israel for 400 years talks about this coming prophet. It says in Malachi chapter 4, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And so with all of these, these prophecies and with John's odd behavior and his appearance, many people believe that John was Elisha who came back to preach about Jesus. He, he looks like him. He preaches like him. He acts like him. So he got everyone's attention. Let's keep reading in verse number five. It says, and when, uh, then went him out of Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan and were baptized of him in the Jordan, confessing 
their sins. Now, we're going to take a little bit of time this morning. We're going to look at John's message and not really how he delivered it, but what his message was that got all these people from the area of Jerusalem and Judea to come out to him at the Jordan River to, to hear him preach and to repent and to confess their sins and be baptized. And so we're going to first of all look at number one, the simplicity of John's message. Look at John's message again in verse number two. It says, and saying, repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's a very simple message. One point, repent. That's it. He doesn't give any follow-up points or any good poems or funny stories. All he says is, hey, repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, the word repent in the, in the Greek literally means to turn away from something. So John, what he is telling people is specifically they are to turn away from their sin. That was the entirety of his message. There was nothing new to what John had said. Now, the people listening to John, they had come out to hear some great new message from this prophet of God. They hadn't heard from God in 400 years. And then John comes on the scene and they assume it's Elijah. And so they come out to hear from this man of God and they're expecting some wonderful new prophecy or wonderful new truth or some great lesson from God. And all John says is, you better repent of your sins. That's they already knew that. That's not new information. You know, John's not the first one to come on the scene and say, hey, you know the sins you're committing? You probably should stop doing that. He's not the first. So this is not new information to the people that are listening to John. That he is telling them something they already knew. Now, the people, the problem we have isn't that we need to learn some new truth that will change our lives. What we need to do is obey the truth that God's already given us. You know, no, there's a lot of, of, of preachers out there and a lot of messages out there. And if anyone ever comes to you and says, hey, I've discovered some new powerful truth in the word of God, that if you learn this truth, it's going to change your life. They're lying to you. There's nothing new that God's going to reveal to us. There is no new revelation. Now, you may, may get some inspiration from the given revelation, but you're not getting a new truth from God. We don't need a new truth from God. We need to obey what God's told us to do. When God's told us to love God with all of our heart, mind, and soul, we don't need to find some new way to explain that. We just need to love God with everything we have. When God says, hey, love your neighbor as yourself, say, why are you preaching on those two preachers? Because Jesus said the most important commandments are love God and love each other. And if you do that, you'll obey everything else. So we don't need some new truth about how to love our neighbor. We just need to love our neighbor. Be kind to people. Be respectful of people. Be good to people. Treat people like we want to be treated. Because Jesus says if you obey all of those things, you're obeying all the law. Say, well, how is that possible? If you treat your spouse like you want to be treated, then you're probably not going to lie to them. You're probably not going to cheat on them. You're probably not going to murder them. So guess what you're doing? You're obeying all the law of God. If you treated your neighbor like you want to be treated, again, you're not going to, be, you're not going to steal from them. You're not going to talk bad about them. You're not going to, God, you're going to treat them with the same respect you want to have. Then you are automatically, because you're doing that, obeying 
the word of God. And if you love God with all your heart, that means the things that you cling on to that you know the word of God says are wrong. The lifestyle you have, the, the, the relationships you have, the entertainment you do, those things that you have in your life, some attitude towards someone else, some, some lie that you keep living, some sin that God has said you are not to commit, but you continue to commit it. If you were to love God with all your heart, you wouldn't want to do that. You would repent because that's what God commands you to do. And here's the thing. As I'm, I don't have to name all the sins. I don't have to go through and say, God said, don't do this. God said, don't do this. God don't do this, said, do this. You, everyone here is a professing believer. Most of you have been in church the majority of your life. You know what God says is a sin. And when I'm talking about it, you know what is in your life that you should not be doing because God's telling you. When I say God says repent, the Holy Spirit is telling you, that means that, that TV show or that website you like to visit, you shouldn't be going there. That means the, that way you treat your wife is wrong. The way you treat your husband is wrong. The, the attitudes you have towards that person is wrong. The way you lie to your employer and steal hours from your employer is wrong. Whatever it is that you are clinging on to, whatever you have that you think is more important to you than a relationship with God, that you cherish more than God, whatever is your idol, God's already told you. So when John got up and said, repent, people knew what they were supposed to repent of because the Holy Spirit had told them. Same thing with you. When I say repent, you know what God wants you to repent of. You know how I know that? Because as I was studying this message, I knew what I should have repented of. God told me, say, but you're the preacher. You're supposed to be perfect. Yeah, you don't know. You don't know preachers is what you don't know. We're, you know, I like to, when I get to heaven, me and Paul are going to have a debate because he says he's the chiefest of sinners. And I'm going to be like, oh, Paul, I got you beat, dog. I'm the biggest sinner there ever was. Let me show you what I've done. But God, the simplicity of Paul, of John's message isn't, hey, here's 15 steps to live a perfect, fulfilling life. Or here's 27 steps to have God give you what you need. No, his message is, hey, get right with God. Repent of your sins and live the way God has told you to. If John were here and told us to repent, most of us would know what we are to repent of. You know what area of your life isn't fully surrendered to God. You know what area of your life you say, God, you can have this, but I'm keeping the rest for me. Whether it's your, your marriage whether it's your, your finances, whether it's your entertainment, whether it's your relationships, whether it's your child rearing, whatever it is, you know whatever area of your life you want to keep for yourself and say, God, you can mess with this, but this is all my, don't touch this part of my life. That's what we're supposed to repent of because our entire life is to be surrendered to God. God, here's, here's everything about me. Here's my marriage. Here's my work, here's my career, here's my finances, here's my relationships, here's my thoughts. Lord, here's everything of me. You have access to all of it. Do with it what you will. Lord, show me where I'm wrong in any of these areas. And God, help me to live a life that is honoring to you. 
you know right now what area you need to repent in. And God has nothing more to say to us until we obey this command. John's message to the Jews in his day and to us is simple. Recognize the areas of your life you are rebelling against God and repent of them. Second thing we need to look at is number two, the tone of the message. Again, look at verse two. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's kind of an apocalyptic message. John is speaking of the end of the world. Now, he's not talking about the end of the world later on. He's talking about the end of the world as they know it. The end of the way to worship God and the way to come to God and the way to... He goes, the way you used to do life, the way you used to worship God is coming to an end. And so you need to get right with God so you can live your life to its fullest in a way that honors him. Now, if we were, again today, we go down into Salem and we see a guy walking around in a loincloth eating insects with a sign that says the end is near. Are we going to listen to him? No. I mean, Reggie and Rhonda had a pretty interesting experience in Salem this week and they didn't think that's a message from God. They thought that's a crazy person. Say, what is it? Ask them, they'll tell you. But we, if we saw John like that, we wouldn't think, man, this guy is a prophet of God. We think, hey, someone forgot to take their medication. So let's, let's help them out. Uh, but John's message, it made people listen to him because they wanted the end to come. Now, they didn't expect the end of the world, but they wanted the end of the Roman oppression. They wanted the end of them not being a nation. They wanted God to come to overthrow every empire, including the Roman Empire, and to set David back on the throne in Israel for eternity, where their nation would be the most powerful nation in the world. That's what they were looking for. So they, they believed John's message, but they understood his meaning. They believed the Messiah was coming soon, but that the end John spoke of was the end of Roman oppression. But here's the thing. Whenever you read the gospel or you you read the gospel stories or you you understand the gospel of Jesus, you, you understand that Jesus Christ came as God in the flesh born of a virgin to live a perfectly sinless life. That when he said he came to fulfill the law, that he completely obeyed the law of God his entire life and he was accused of crimes he didn't commit and he died on the cross for my sins and your sins. And while he hung there, God placed my sins on him and then God poured out God's wrath for my sins on Jesus and Jesus died and he was buried and rose again three days later to redeem me to God the Father. When you understand that story, it has an apocalyptic feel to it. Because at any moment, one of two things can happen. At any moment, Jesus could come back to claim his bride. At any moment, the trumpet could sound, and as Paul says, the Dead in Christ will rise first and then those that are alive and remain will be caught up with them in the clouds and will, will, will be with God for eternity. And Paul says that could happen in the twinkling of an eye. You know how fast a twinkling of an eye is? No, because it's really fast. I've heard some preachers go, it's that fast. No, it's not. It's faster than that. 
is faster than you can blink. In an instant, Jesus could come back and we could be gone. Wouldn't that be a great day? Wouldn't that be good if that were today? I mean, if God came back right now, I'd be fine with that, as long as I got to take Scarlet with me. But that's my dog. I love my dog. All right. Me and April talk. She's like, what are you going to do when Scarlet dies? I'm like, I'm going to go with her. What are you going to do without me and Scarlet? Because I can't live without Scarlet. So anyway, uh, but any, at any moment, God could come. And it says, like a thief in the night, if you've, I don't, if you've ever been robbed, the thief didn't tell you when he was coming to rob you, right? Because if he did tell you, hey, I'm going to show up at 2 a.m. on Thursday night to rob you, and you didn't do anything about it, you're pretty dumb. Uh, so the thief doesn't tell you when he's coming. So what does Paul says when it's like a thief in the night? That nobody knows when God's coming back. The Bible says that even Jesus doesn't know when he's coming back to get his bride. So no one knows. And if anyone says, I know the day, I know that I've made, I've studied the scripture and I've used algebra and I know the date. No, they don't. Cause Jesus doesn't even know. Well, the moon's gonna do this on a certain day and that's the third time it's gonna do it this year. And so that means that Jesus is going no, it doesn't. We don't know when God's coming back. He could come back at any moment. So we don't know when he's going to return so that means we, as God's children, are to live like we are ready for his return. We are to live with the knowledge that at any moment, Jesus could come back to claim his bride, and we shouldn't want to be caught unready. We, want, we shouldn't want to be caught unprepared for God to come back. That means we, we, shouldn't, we should live our life in such a way that we don't want to meet Jesus with some great unconfessed in our life that we've kept for years thinking, I'll, I'll get right before Jesus comes back because you don't know me. We don't want to be caught with sin in our life. Say, well, if I am, is God not? No, God's going to still going to let you into heaven. But how are you going to feel if you stand before Jesus one day? And one day we're all going to stand before God. So even after the, the rapture, we're all going to stand before God and we're going to be judged not for our sins because our sins were judged on, at Calvary, we're going to be judged for how we lived our life after we got saved. And I've, I've heard people say, we're going to stand before God and God's going to have this great big screen and show every sin we've ever committed. No, that's chick track nonsense. That's not how it's going to happen. God's not going to judge you or show your sins, but God's going to look at you and say, hey, what did you do for me after you got saved? How did you live for me? Were you a witness for me? Did you serve me? What? And then everything we did for God is going to be judged. And if we did it because we wanted people to think we were great and good. Look, here's the thing. If you are faithful to church, amen. One of the greatest things y'all can do to help me as a pastor is be in your place. Now, I know sometimes y'all are on vacation. Like last week, this whole section was gone because, you know, everybody's on vacation. Danny and Trudy weren't feeling well. And so sometimes I'm like, oh, man. The rapture happened and only the center section got taken. But uh, the greatest thing you can do to encourage me is be faithful. But if you are faithful to church because you want people to think you're a good Christian, when you stand before God, God's going to say, that don't matter to me. Why should I be faithful to church then? Because God commands us to and we are to come together and worship God with God's children and praise him and be faithful to him because he's been faithful to us. So you're going to stand before God and 
Everything you ever did for him, every, every track you ever passed out, every message you ever gave, every song you ever sang is going to be judged. And if you did it for your glory, it gets burned up. If you did it for his glory, then it becomes a crown that we then get to give back to him. None of us, I believe, want to stand before God crownless. Because those crowns aren't for people to look at us and say, oh man, that guy's got a dump truckload of crowns. Because no one's going to think that. But we can take those crowns and we are able to praise God and glorify God with them. And one of my biggest fears is I'm going to be standing there with nothing in my hand while old McCormick and Reggie there are just chunking everything they got and I got nothing. Why? Because I didn't live prepared for the fact that any second God could come back and claim us. Before we finish this sermon, I know some of y'all thinking, amen, hope he does. Before we finish this sermon, God could come back at any moment. The second thing we need to realize, the second thing that the, the gospel, the second reason the gospel is kind of apocalyptic is because not only at any moment Jesus could come back, but at any moment we could die. Any one of us. You know, we, none of us are promised tomorrow. The Bible says the, that life is, is a vapor. It's just here for a second and gone. Now, some of you, some of us may be lucky enough and God blesses us and we, we live to our 100. Personally, I don't want to get there, but you, you live a great old life and, you know, die peacefully in your sleep. And that's a wonderful, may, praise God. Some of us could die this week or today on the way home from church. We could get in a car accident and be gone. Our health, none of us know really how healthy we are. I've known healthy people who, who exercised and ran and, and did everything right, who dropped dead at early ages because of some genetic thing that they didn't even know about. That's why you shouldn't exercise. You know, the Bible says the wicked runs when no man pursues. Amen? So you runners, what you running from, you wicked person, anyway? But, well, yeah, you should take care of yourself. I'm actually, I'm, I'm, I'm at a gym. I'm trying to take better care of myself, trying to get healthy. Say, why? Because April won't leave me alone. Uh, but anyway, at any moment we could die. So we should live in, in the knowledge that at any moment God could come back or at any moment we could face him but face to face because we die. So it doesn't matter how healthy or young you are. Death comes to anyone at any time. So here's the tone of John's message. We need to live ready to meet God face to face. Wisdom is living today with our final day in mind. Don't put off doing what matters. Building relationships that can bring people to Christ matters. Offering forgiveness matters. Repenting of our sins matters. Building his kingdom matters. Catching up on the latest episode on our favorite show doesn't matter. Not in eternity. Live our life. Say, you saying I shouldn't watch TV? No, I like TV. I watch a lot of TV shows. But you know what's more important than catching up on, on my favorite TV show? Living knowing that at any second I could see God face to face and I lived my life fully for him. That's why Moses prayed in Psalm 90. He says, so teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. His prayer was this, God, help me live in the knowledge of death so that I will know how to live to honor you. 
We see the tone of the message. Third thing I want to look at is the response to the message. Look again at verse 5. Then went out him to Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around about, so that they went out to him, uh, round about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. Their response was to repent and be baptized of their sins. Now, baptism was common in this time. Baptism wasn't an uncommon thing, but the way John was doing it and the way John was teaching it was different than anything they had heard. Now, the Jews in this time, they used baptism in two ways. The first was a part of conversion. If a Gentile wanted to convert to Judaism, they had to do three things. They had to be circumcised. They had to memorize the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, and they had to be baptized. They, the baptism was a show of them washing away their old pagan Gentile life and accepting the life of a Jew. The, the second way that they used uh, baptism was a ritual cleansing. It was something you did to yourself to cleanse yourself scripturally or symbolically before you offered a sacrifice. So before you could offer a sacrifice, you would have to cleanse yourself or be baptized to be able to enter the presence of God and offer a sacrifice. But John's baptism was different from these. It wasn't aimed at the Gentiles. It was directed at the Jews. And it wasn't about becoming a Jew. It wasn't about a ritual cleansing. This was a baptism of repentance. He was telling these religious leaders that, and these religious Jews that they still needed to be converted. The people he's talking to, they've been circumcised because they were born into, into Judaism. They've memorized the first five books of the Torah because that's what every good Jewish boy and girl did. They've lived their life in obedience to the ritual laws of God. They've done everything that they've been told needs to be done. And John comes and says, there's still something else you got to do. You have to repent of your sins. And the baptism was a symbol of them obeying what God had told them to do. So it was a, about a baptism of repentance. Look at Matthew uh, chapter 3, look at verse 7. Because <clears throat> remember, okay, now get the story here. John's baptizing for repentance, and then verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth, therefore, fruits, meat for repentance, and think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able to these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which bringeth forth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. So he's, he's preaching this repentance gospel. People are coming to him. They're repenting. They're being baptized. And then here comes the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders. And the religious leaders, they're doing what all religious people tend to do in life. They are coming to something that seems religious because that's what religious people do. 
They hear about religious things happening and they want to be associated with it. But John saw right through them. He says, you're not going to come here and just be baptized because that's the, the new thing to do or because that's what you think you have to do. You have to bring forth fruit that is showing repentance. So here's what John's telling them. He's saying, stop hiding behind your religion. Your religion is not going to help you. You have to have a change at the root. See, a lot of people, religion keeps a lot of people from dealing with the root problems in their hearts and their lives. You know, religion is like a married man that has a mistress. Sunday through Thursday, he spends with his wife and his kids, and he's a good husband. He's an attentive father. He brings home good paycheck to take care of them. But every Friday and Saturday, he leaves to go spend time with his girlfriend. When his wife gets upset, he just figures, well, I'll just work harder Sunday through Thursday to be more loving to her, to be more attentive to her, buy her more gifts, be, be better to her and the kids, and that'll make up for what I'm doing on Friday and Saturday. But the problem isn't that he's not busy enough with his family Sunday through Thursday. The problem is he has a divided heart. Yeah, he loves his wife. Yeah, he loves his kids. But he loves this other life he has as well. And that's what religion does. It doesn't deal with the core of the issue. It doesn't deal with the issue of self-love and money love and relationship love instead of fully loving God. See, worst of all, religion, it keeps you from throwing yourself on God's grace, which is the only hope we have for salvation. You know, Jesus tells a story about two men who go to the temple to worship. One of them is a, a really religious man. He looks the party fast three times a day. He's a Pharisee. He's, he's well known in his community to be a, a good guy, a religious man, a man who is right with God. The other one's a tax collector. Now, none of us really like the IRS, except when tax season comes and we get a refund, amen? Can I get an amen on that one? We like, the, we like the stimulus packages about that stuff, but every other time we don't like the IRS. The tax collectors in this time, to really understand how horrible people thought of them. If there was an equivalent of a tax collector in our culture, it would be a sex trafficker. People hated them. They were considered traitors and rebellious. They, they turned on their own people to help the Roman Empire and line their own pockets. They were disgusting people in their culture. And here comes this, this tax collector, this, this sex trafficker into the temple. Pharisee, of course, says, Lord, I'm, you're lucky to have me. I fast three times a day. You know, I fast three times a day too. I fast between breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I fast all the time. I give a portion and say, well, God, I give a portion of all my goods to the poor. Lord, I obey the law. Lord, I am not like this wicked tax collector. You are so good, lucky to have me on your team. You know what the tax collector says? He can't even raise his eyes to look. He stands in the back and just says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says that disgusting tax collector 
went away righteous. While that self-pompous religious Pharisee, he went away covered in his sin. He was still in his sin. Why? Because he thought his religion was what made him right with God. So what John is telling the religious crowd is, he goes, look, you, can, you can't say that you have Abraham so you're fine because Abraham doesn't do anything for you because God can raise children to Abraham no matter what. Religion makes you retreat into something other than God's grace. So what is it for us? Is it, what do you retreat into that makes you feel like a good person? Your church attendance? Your tithing record? Your your reputation, your ministry, your political affiliation. There is no hope for any of us outside of God's grace. There are two ways that we can be separated from God according to John. One is by living in disobedience to God's word, by living in sin and refusing to repent and get right with God. Because God says, if you regard iniquity in your heart, God will not hear you. Iniquity is that, that, that feeling you have that you have the right to do what you're doing, even if God says it's wrong. I have the right because I've worked hard. She treats me. Whatever it is, whatever justification you have to justify your sin, God says, that's iniquity. And if you keep justifying your sin, I'm not going to hear you. I will not fellowship with you. The other way that John says we can be separated from God is by thinking that we're good enough to earn God's approval, but never dealing with our true sinful heart. That's why John and Jesus are so harsh with the Pharisees. You know, the people that Jesus fussed at the most was the religious crowd. He ate with sinners. He's hanging out with prostitutes. He's, he's seeing women taken in the, the very act of adultery and as the only one who has the right to judge her saying, I'm not going to judge you. Just don't sin anymore. Those are the people he hung out with, the religious people that thought they were good. Those are the ones he's, he's fussing with and he's preaching against. Same as John. That's why John was so harsh with the Pharisees. We can't allow our religion to take away our walk with God. We need to stop trying to figure out what other religious things we need to do to be a good Christian. Stop, doing, stop trying to do good works to make God happy and just repent of your sins Surrender to God and claim his grace. Let's keep looking at verse number 11. <clears throat> I indeed baptize you with, uh, verse 11 says, uh, sorry, I was looking at something else. I indeed baptize you with water uh, unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to hear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. So John, he's showing us the significance of the baptism that he is offering. John's baptism was symbolic of something. He says, I am baptizing you unto repentance. That doesn't mean that the baptism makes you repent, but it's a symbol of what you've done. And so John's baptism is a symbol of a greater baptism to come, and that is the baptism that comes from the Holy Spirit. That's why John, where John baptized is so significant. He baptized in the Jordan River. 
The Jordan River was the boundary between the wilderness and the promised land. He is on the edge of the wilderness and the promised land. It's where Joshua had led Israel from the wilderness of sin into the land that God had promised Abraham. So it represented leaving the sin of the wilderness for a life in fellowship with God in his perfect will. The real baptism is when you leave the wilderness of sin in your life for the promised land of faith and a relationship with God the Father. The only way we do that is through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the only way we receive the Holy Spirit is through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why that we need a Messiah who can give us the fire of the Holy Spirit, not just some symbolic cleansing that doesn't change us, but can baptize us in the Holy Spirit and change us for eternity. Look at verse number 13. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. And he suffered him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. And lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, there's a lot going on in these, these last few verses. First of all, Jesus comes to be baptized of John, and John recognizes him. He's his cousin, number one. We don't really know if John and, and Jesus spent a whole lot of time as kids or growing up with each other. They were in different areas. And it wasn't like the day where you travel a couple hours to go see your cousins and spend some grandma. So <clears throat> we don't know if he recognized him as his cousin, but he recognized him as the Messiah. <clears throat> so Jesus comes to John to be baptized, and John recognizing him as the son of God says, uh, I, I can't, first of all, I don't need to baptize you. I'm not worthy to baptize you. I just told people I'm not even worthy to tie your shoe. How am I going to baptize you? I need to be baptized of you. And so he tries to stop Jesus uh, because, he has, because Jesus has nothing to repent of. So he has no need to be baptized. But Jesus, what he's doing here, why he told him, don't stop me because the, we need to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus is beginning his ministry of substitution. See, Jesus didn't need to repent of anything, but we do. Jesus was showing us how he would cleanse us from all our sins. He was becoming sin for us so we could become his righteousness through his death, burial, and resurrection. He who knew no sin, he became sin for us. He would be beaten for us until he didn't look like a human. His back was laid open through the scourging he endured. He had nine-inch nails driven through his wrists and his feet. He had a crown of thorns beaten upon his head. He was spit on and humiliated. Jesus died for every act of violence, every sexual abuse, every betrayal, every lie, every act of selfishness and sinfulness. And when he was baptized, he was showing what would happen, how he would die in our place and rise again for us. And that's why God said, this is my beloved son. I'm pleased with him. See, 
Jesus didn't just die for you. Jesus died instead of you. He took your place as God poured out his wrath on sin. He did for us what we could never do. He was the substitution that we needed. So our response to John's message should be the same response that the people in his day gave. Repent of our sins, follow God, and thank Jesus for a substitution. See, the question we need to ask ourselves today is the same question that those who were listening to John had to ask themselves. Have we repented? Are we holding on to some secret sin because we like it more than we love God? Because we, we love ourselves more than we love Him? Have we repented? Is there any area in our life that we haven't completely surrendered to God? See, John's tone tells us we don't have tomorrow to wait to get right with God. None of us do. Well, I'll do it later. We may not have later. God could come back at any moment. Any of us could die at any moment. None of us are promised tomorrow. So I'll get right tomorrow. We may not have it. His tone tells us that we are today to get right with God and live in the knowledge that at any moment he could come back or we could face him. Our response should be obedience or it can be self-righteous denial like the Pharisees. What's your response to John's message this morning? Let's pray. Heavenly Father.